We are in a series in the book of 1 Samuel, and we are in 1 Samuel chapter 9, 10, and 11 this morning. And so it's helpful to have your Bibles open. If you didn't bring one, there's a blue Bible uh, in a chair in front of you. And that's on page 231 of the Blue Pew Bible. I'm also going to reference Joshua chapter 4, verse 19. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, just turn left a few chapters and you'll get to Joshua. It's on page 180 if you're using the Blue Pew Bible. So 1 Samuel 9, 10, and 11, Joshua chapter 4. Uh, most of you know Sarah Anderson, a person who was working at, as our admin until recently. She went into the hospital this morning to give birth to her son, Silas. So I'm praying that Silas is born while Paul is preaching. <laughs> that's my prayer this morning. Um, I bet that's her prayer right now, too. Uh, one of the challenging aspects of preaching through Samuel is that it's, it's one long story, 31 chapters in 1 Samuel, 24 chapters in 2 Samuel, and it's also part of a much larger unfolding history, and that's Genesis to Revelation, and the challenge is if you're a first-time guest here this morning, then you're in the, you've come into the middle of a story, and that always makes it a little bit difficult, you know how it is when somebody enters into the room halfway through the movie, and they keep asking questions. You're like, you should have been here at the beginning. Um, but so here we are, but we, we are at sort of a, a, a turning point. And one of the main storylines in the book of Samuel is a big shift or a big transition in leadership style of the people of God. So we started out as uh, the leadership style were judges. You want to think like military generals. And we're shifting to a monarchy, a, a kingdom, and Saul is going to be the first king. So Samuel is this uh, transition figure. He's really the last judge, and he's handing off this leadership to the first king. And if you just look in your Bible, you'll see judges comes before Samuel, and kings comes after Samuel. So it serves as a bridge in between uh, that leadership shift. And you also notice that there's a shift because the, the writer gives you a clue. If you look back with me to chapter 1, verse 1, the way the, the writer starts out saying this about 1 Samuel is, there was a certain man, his name was Elkanah. And you find out that this certain man actually is the son or the, the father of, of Samuel. So a certain man is named, and then you find out, hey, we're really not interested in this man as much as we are interested in his son. Chapter 9, verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. So an, there's another man that comes on the scene. Something's happening here, and we find out that we're not actually that interested in Kish. We're interested in his son, and his son's name was Saul. So in these uh, three chapters, uh, Israel launches a, a monarchy. Maybe I should say God launches a monarchy in Israel. And as we look at these three chapters, I want to look at them under these three titles. Chapter 9, God's providence. God's providence in how he chooses a king. Chapter 10, God's requirements. 
he chooses a king in chapter 9. In chapter 10, he gives requirements to the king. And then in chapter 11, chapter 11 we're seeing God's spirit comes upon the king, and then what's the king's responsibility there? So God's providence, God's requirements of the king, and then God's spirit and the king's responsibility. So we'll take each of these in turn, and you follow along as we try to just read through some, but not all, the text here. First of all, in chapter 9, we're talking about providence, and we want to just stop and try to give a definition to providence. One of the commentaries that I read this week says uh, this about providence. It's the wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way the Lord has in ruling the world. So God's ruling the world. We call that providence, but it's, it's wonderful. It's strange. It's mysterious. It's not guessable how he's doing it. But all these things he's doing for uh, his glory, and we call that providence. We uh, read a definition from the Heidelberg Catechism. God's almighty and ever-present power, that with his hands he's upholding heaven and earth. And then there's these pairings that no matter what's happening underneath heaven and earth, he's upholding these things. Leaf and blade, rain and drought. Fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. All things are being held up by God's hand, and we call that providence. So as a Christian, our worldview isn't one that we believe that we live in a closed system. That there's nothing happening from outside the system on our world. We think, no, there is somebody outside of our system, and he is enacting his plan according to his, uh, his, um, his providence. Secondly, we, we wouldn't say we believe in something like karma. Karma. You hear, hear that term pretty frequently these days. It's the sum of a person's action which decides their fate and their future. So your, your actions right now are adding up in some way that determine your fate and your future. So who's at the center of that worldview? Well, you are. My actions are, are all adding up, and I'm going to sort of get what I've added up. And we wouldn't say we believe that. We definitely would not believe that because we'd, we wouldn't put you or me at the center. The, the Lord's at the center, and he's providentially working things according to his own plan. But maybe the easiest way, uh, or maybe the clearest way to think about God's providence actually is from this poem that's on the front of your bulletin from Corey Ten Boom. Most of you are familiar with her, just you read something like The Hiding Place when you were in school. And she spent three months in solitary confinement and 10 months in a German concentration camp. And she was sent there with her family because she was part of a group who, who tried to hide some of the Jews that were being uh, persecuted. And she writes this, just a few lines. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. You hear what she's saying? This, this woman who's been in solitary confinement. This woman who spent almost a year in a concentration camp. She, know God, she knows God is weaving, but she doesn't get to choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. 
Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. That's, to me, that helps me understand God's providence. There, there will be some times in your life that you'll say, well, I didn't realize what God was doing until this point, and you see it. But there's going to be some, some places and maybe many places that you're not going to be able to see the whole canvas until your life is over and you meet him. And he explains how he chose his colors for his good purposes. So when we look at chapter 9 and we think about God's providence, the interesting thing is you get to see it from two ways. You get to see it from sort of a, a horizontal view or Saul's view, and then you get to see it from God's view. So these things are happening, uh, they're, they're the same things happening, but you get two different views on it. And the first we just notice Saul's view. Saul is uh, Kish's son. We don't really know anything about him other than Kish was a wealthy man, and he had a lot of livestock, donkeys particularly. And uh, one day, the donkeys get out of the stall. And when you look, if you look with me in chapter 9, verse 3, uh, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, uh, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And so what happens is the dad comes and says, "Look, I don't want to go round up these stupid donkeys. I'm going to get my son, and my son's going to go get him, and he's going to get a friend." So he says, "Get one of your servants, get one of your friends, and you guys go hike around and try to find these these donkeys." So he they they do these two guys leave, and you see in verses four, five, and six they pass through di three different. Uh, counties or three different territories and they can't seem to find the donkeys and when you get to verse 5 they come to a land called Zuph Z-U-P-H and when they get the, to this now this fourth territory Saul says to his friend hey now we've been gone so long my dad might be worried about us so we should probably try to go back and forget about the donkeys and just at that time Samuel is arriving into the town of Zuf. And the servant happens to know something about Samuel and says, hey, there's a guy in this town that he has some sort of prophetic ability. He's a, what they call a seer. He might be able to help us out. Why don't we go to see him? So they scrounge around. They find this coin in their in their uh, pocket. They decide they'll go to the town, verse 11. They go into the city. They happen to meet this young woman who's drawing water. They say, do you know anything about this guy? And, they, and she says, yes, verse 12. Hurry on ahead. He's come just now into the city. And they enter into the city, verse 14. And as they were entering into the city, they saw Samuel coming out towards them. So this is, this is God providentially bringing Saul to Samuel. And you hear that? It's just everyday events. Saul gets up, stupid donkeys get out of the cage, got to go find the donkeys. I get lost, they get lost. We've been gone for a long time. We have no idea where, what, what's going on. We decide to turn back, except my friend who I just happened to choose knows something about this guy named Samuel. And would you believe it? He happens to be in the same town we're in. And so we go into that town and Oddly enough, this woman knows about Samuel, and she points us in his, his direction. And we walk into the city, and there is Samuel. That's, that's Saul's viewpoint. Now let's look at God's viewpoint, verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, so all this stat, we don't know how long Saul's been looking for these donkeys, but several days at least. 
The day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come up to me. When Samuel saw Saul, verse 17, the Lord told him, here is the man. Now, doesn't that sound a lot simpler? I mean, don't you wish you could just wake up and get that kind of text today? Hey, this is what's going to happen. Paul, you know, I know what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. And it's just, I mean, we don't have all this wandering and donkeys and got a friend and meet a woman and look for a quarter and all this stuff. It's just that, hey, you're just gonna, you need to go to this town and meet this guy and then we're going to move on. But you know what? God doesn't work that way. He does not send me a text every morning telling me how everything's going to unfold. What he expects me to do is just be faithful to the next event. To just do what I'm supposed to be doing. And he's going to be able to steer that ship in the way that he would like to see it go. And we see this happens. This happens in the Bible all the time. The, the wise man in Proverbs says this, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his step. So you get up and you plan a course. You have a calendar. You, you have your checklist. But it's the Lord who's determining your step. And then you notice through the Bible, uh, if you know the story of Queen Esther. Everybody knows this line from her story, if you're familiar with the story. Her uncle comes to her. And her people are just about ready to be slaughtered. And he says to her, Queen Esther, who knows, but you have come to such a position for such a time as this. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, I know God's providentially arranging things. And who knows, Esther? You're actually a, a part of a harem. You're enslaved to this king in a way. But who knows that God isn't using those terrible circumstances to put you in a place to save a whole people. How about... Zacchaeus in Luke 19. You know the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. You know that vacation Bible school story. God uses the fact that he's vertically challenged to have an intersection with God. So Zacchaeus finds out Jesus is coming to his town and he wants to go look at him. And he can't get in to look at him because all the people are taller than Zacchaeus. And they don't like Zacchaeus anyway, so they're kind of elbowing him out because he's a tax collector. And so Zacchaeus, he looks down the road and says, hey, there's a sycamore tree. I can just sort of get up on the branch, and when Jesus walks down the road, I'll have a good look at him. And it's so interesting how Luke records it. Jesus does walk down the road, and it says, and when Jesus reaches the spot, what is that spot? It's the divinely providential spot of Zacchaeus meeting Jesus. And Jesus looks up, never having met Zacchaeus in person, saying, Hey, Zacchaeus, you're right where I thought you would be this morning. Up in the tree, come down. I'm going to have dinner with you tonight. And so Zacchaeus, is he doesn't realize he's on his way to a divine counter, just like the woman at the well. Remember her? Had five husbands. The man she's living with now is not her husband. 
she's the talk of the town. She's in the gossip column. She doesn't want to be around all the other busybody women in town to go get the water in the morning or the evening. So she decides in order to not see anyone else, she goes to the well at noon and guess who she finds? Jesus. Who has been waiting for her all the time. So you see this intersection of how God is taking moments, taking uh, ordinary events and weaving them together for his purposes. And I think one thing that we can take away here and maybe especially helpful for college students or anybody who's trying to figure out their whole life, but a lot of times that happens when you're getting towards the end of college, is that you're not going to get it all figured out. I hope, I hope that's not a newsflash. Um, you can plan your course. You should say, well, I, I got this major. I want to do these things. That, all that's fine. You should be doing those things. And even if you're not in college, you're waking up saying, I'm going to try to go down this direction with my life or my family or my business or my community, whatever it is. But you should just wake up and try to do the next right thing. Instead of trying to figure out the end, just say, hey, I can get up today and go look for donkeys. And I might come back the king. Who knows? I mean, I can't even imagine Saul going, I woke up looking for donkeys, now I'm the king of Israel. And who knows that some very simple, common task would lead you to intersect some person and you would have a divine encounter. That, that's how God normally operates. And so if you're here this morning, especially if you're here as a visitor, this is a divine encounter. This is a moment of God's providence. However you got here, whatever friend asked you or you just thought, well, this is, I haven't tried this church out. Whatever it is, you're, you're not here by accident. You're here by God's divine providence. And my hope and our hope for you is that you would really hear from him. So chapter 9, about God's providence. Chapter 10, now God's requirements. Notice in 10 verse 1. Uh, then Samuel takes a flask of oil and pours it on Saul's head and kisses him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be the prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And then I'm going to give you these signs we'll talk about in a minute. So Samuel, in this sort of private ceremony, he actually anoints Saul to be the king. And it's important for us to know that this word anointing has a bigger, um, a bigger voice uh, in the whole Bible than just what we see here. The word anoint in the Greek, if you translate it from the, Greek, from the Hebrew to the Greek, that's the word Christ. And so when you read now from the New Testament viewpoint back, you see Saul's being anointed. So when you say the words Jesus Christ, you're meaning to say Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the, the true king. And so Saul is a, a shadow like Christ. He's somebody who's being anointed and notice what he's supposed to do. He's anointed and he's going to save his people from their enemies. That's exactly what Jesus is, do, is to do. He's going to be anointed and he saves his people from the enemy. 
So we see this theme running through the Bible over and over again. And then to make sure that Saul knows that Samuel is speaking God's word, he says, I'm going to give you these three signs. Because look, it's just, you just ran into this guy on this random thing. He's telling you're going to be king, but you, you don't know me. So I'm going to give you these three signs, and then I'm going to give you a test. First of all, in verse 2, you're going to run into these two men who are going to give you this information about your dad and some donkeys. And then you're going to sort of turn a corner, and you're going to meet these three men who are going to give you some food. And then around the next corner, you're going to run into these prophets, verse 5 and 6, and they're going to come into your presence prophesying, and the spirit that's on them is going to jump on you, and you're going to be prophesying. It's a very unusual thing to happen. These three things, Saul, are going to confirm in you that I'm speaking to you the truth, the word of God. And then notice then in verse 8, then there's a test. So all these things are going to happen, and then sometime later, you're going to go down to a, to a town called Gilgal, verse 8. And behold, I'm coming to you to offer a burnt offering. So you're going to be sent to Gilgal for some purpose, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to offer a, an offering and a sacrifice, and seven days you have to wait until I come, and then I'm going to show you what to do. So three signs... And then at some point, a test. Three signs and a test. The three signs Saul has. And then it's important to just see this test. That even though Saul is the king, he's going to have to wait. He's going to have to wait on God's word. He's going to have to wait on Samuel to come. Now, this is where I want you to turn back to me with Joshua chapter 4, verse 19. And this is the text that we use for our Founders Day sermon. And you remember that uh, Joshua is the general. He's leading them across the uh, River Jordan into the promised land after they've come out of the, uh, the desert for 40 years. And it says this in verse 19, And the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal. Okay, so when you read Gilgal, you know, okay, something big has happened in Gilgal before. And now Saul is going to have to go back to Gilgal, and he should just be importing what has happened at that place before. And what has happened at that place? Verse 20, 12 stones they took out of the Jordan. And then Joshua set these 12 stones up like an altar at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you're going to let your children know Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for until you passed over. And the Lord your God, just as your Lord, the Lord your God did at the Red Sea when he drived it up. So that the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that the fear of the Lord and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So he's going back to Gilgal. I want you to get this in your mind. He's going back to Gilgal. He understands the importance of this place. Perhaps the stones are still around somewhere. And he knows a miraculous entrance into the land occurred. And God then fought the enemies for Joshua. And Saul's going to go back and he's going to have to wait. He's going to have to wait on Samuel, Samuel's word before he starts his fighting. And what Samuel wants to make sure Saul understands is that Saul, even though you're going to be the king, 
You have to wait on God. You got to wait on God. That's going to be the most important thing you do, Samuel, because, or Saul, because, Saul, I don't need you to be great. I don't need you to be awesome. I'm awesome. I just need you to be obedient. And if you're obedient, then God's awesomeness is going to be shown. His mighty hand is going to be known. All the nations might know that there is a God because Saul is going to be patient and wait on the Lord. And we'll find out in chapter 13 how that turns out. And so we have, these, we have God's providence, and then we say, okay, so what is, what is the king's uh, responsibility or his requirements? That is to trust in the Lord and wait on the Lord and follow after his word. Now, finally, God's spirit and the king's responsibility, verse 11. You see, with, look back to, with me in uh, chapter 10, verse 24. There's this great ceremony where Saul is crowned the king. The, the first anointing was just sort of this private ceremony. Now Samuel brings Saul before all the people and says, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king. So now you have this public proclamation that Saul is the king. And what we need to have clear in our minds before we turn to chapter 11 is Saul is now the king. So he is a Adam-like figure, meaning he's the king over the promised land, like Adam was the king over the garden. He's the one who's responsible to act on behalf of the Lord. Saul is also a Christ-like figure. He's the one who's going to save people from their sins. So you see these shadows sort of going backwards and forwards to Genesis into the New Testament. Now let's look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, this is an a, a area outside of Israel, bordering Israel, went up and besieged this particular city, Jabesh, which is in Israel. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. So Nahash is coming in with a more powerful army. He's entering into the, to the promised land, and he say, he's going to take them over. But the people say, we don't want to be overwhelmed. Make a treaty with us, and then we'll serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, this is, how, this is the condition I'm going to make a treaty with you, that you gouge out your right eye. It's kind of gross. And when you gouge out your right eye, one of the purposes is to bring disgrace on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh, they've heard this um, contract, and they plead with him, give us seven days. Maybe we can send some messengers throughout the territory. Then if no one comes to save us, this is such a sad phrase, we will give ourselves up to you. A couple things to notice here. Nahash in the Hebrew means snake. You hear the 
You got this, Claude? Do you hear the chord? We've done this before, right? The Adam-like figure who just has been crowned the king, like Adam over all creation. The very next thing that happens, a snake comes in. And you're supposed to feel that. I mean, imagine making a movie of this. Just have this dark, slithering snake coming in now into the, the promised land. And what's the serpent's purpose? To bring shame. Just like Genesis chapter 3. And then notice the, the, the terms of the surrender. Wince at the terms. Gouge out your right eye. Now, according to biblical scholars, the reason they did, they did this was if you were a, fi- a part of the fighting force, you would hold a shield with your left hand and fight with your right hand. Most people were right-handed. And that shield would cover your left eye. And so you would be fighting with your right eye. And if you gouge it out, you can't fight anymore. Then this sad verse 3. If we can't find anybody, then we'll, we'll give ourselves up to you. I think what we're supposed to see here is that when you make a treaty with sin... You lose. You might lose an eye. You definitely lose your soul. And perhaps for a fleeting moment, the treaty looks good or the the sin feels good. But in the end, it takes control of your soul and you lose. And so as I was trying to think about this really gross treaty. I was trying to think, well, I mean, I don't know if any of us are going to go home and have to make this kind of treaty, right? I mean, nobody's going to storm into our house and try to gouge out our right eye. But what, what would be similar today where you made a treaty, sin slithered into your life somehow and, and blinded you in some way? What would that maybe look like? A couple of uh, different examples. And you can tell me if you feel like I've, I'm overreaching. But these were things that came to my mind. True story about a guy named James Smith. He is an, was an intern as a chaplain in a retirement center. And he meets an older gentleman there at the retirement center named Ben Jacobs. Ben was an elderly man, sat in a rocking chair, had a cardigan, wore a button-down shirt. He had a well-trimmed beard. He looked serious, and he looked like he was somebody important. Very sophisticated, liked to debate. And James Smith says, after weeks of visiting with Ben, I discovered Ben's motive for meeting. It was this, Ben wanted to confess that he had lived a bad life. Here's Ben in his own words. I was born in 1910. I made my first million by 1935, so when he was 25. At age 45, I was the richest man in my state. Politicians wanted to be my friend. My life narrative was simple. Amass all the wealth and power you can. I had 2,000 employees, three different wives, all of which left me because of neglect. I have one daughter, but she refuses to speak to me. 
I suppose you could say I ruined my life. Oh, I still have a lot of money, but I sit here each day waiting to die. I cared about no one. Now nobody cares about me. And Ben and uh, James, you're the only person left. Listen to James Smith's conclusion about Ben. Ben wanted to be happy. He never set out to live a sad, joyless life. No, Ben thought he was pursuing happiness. Few people end up in a situation like Ben's all at once. It takes a long time to ruin a life. And you see what has happened with Ben and many, many people? A snake slithered into their soul at some point. A story entered their mind. And they bought into the story. If I have wealth and power, then I have it all. And I have no doubt that many days of Ben's life seemed fulfilling. It seemed like he was on top of the world. He had 2,000 employees. He could get whatever he wanted. But here he is at the end of the life. He's saying, but I've ruined my own life. He carved out his own right eye. Believing a lie. Believing a false narrative about himself. Believing a false narrative about what's valuable in the world. And not being able to see God. I think that's one way that happens today. And it may be that providentially, you're a visitor here. And you might have a false narrative going in your head. And this is God's way of saying, don't end up like Ben. Don't. Don't chase a dream, and by chasing your dream, you're actually pulling your own eye out. A second way I think this can happen, a very different story, true story, Isabella Chow. Some of you may have heard about her. She's a 20-year-old girl, woman, young woman at the University of California, Berkeley. She's on the student government there in the Senate, and recently a bill came before the Senate that would, that would put the body, the Senate, on record of supporting transgender rights. The bill itself was entirely symbolic. It didn't actually have any teeth, but it was, they wanted to make sure everybody was on record of support. The bill passed 18 to 1. Isabella Chow, 20-year-old Christian young woman, abstained. And you can read her five-paragraph statement, but she says this in her opinion. I agree that discrimination is never okay. I condemn bullies and bigots. She called the LGBTQ community valid and loved. That said, voting for the bill would compromise my values and force me to promote groups and identities that I disagree with. So I abstain. As a Christian, I personally do believe that certain acts and lifestyles conflict with what is good and right and true. I believe that God created male and female at the beginning of time and designed sex for marriage between one man and one woman. For me, to love another person does not mean that I silently concur when at the bottom of my heart I do not believe that those choices are right or best. Following her statement, 
1,000 people immediately signed a petition calling for her removal from the student government. The campus newspaper openly condemned her. Her own political party that she was representing her cut ties with her. Uh, the editorial called her statements offensive and declared, UC Berkeley students cannot allow and accept leaders like Chow to make decisions on their behalf. So I, I want you to see what's happening in real time in this situation. Probably happened last week. Chow is okay to be a part of a governing body if she takes out her own eye and disbelieves what part of the scripture says is true. That's what she's being asked to do. I mean, it's okay if you're a Christian. We don't mind that you sit on this board. But you must believe how we believe. And even if your two eyes tell you what God says for us, you got to take one of them out if you want to stay. That is happening like a tidal wave over our current culture. And you and I have to be ready to face that tidal wave. That it's no longer just okay to say, well, we just agree to disagree. No, now you must agree. And if you don't agree, if you don't pluck out your eye because of what you believe what God has said, then you're no longer qualified to speak into the culture in any way. Do you feel that? That marginalization is happening. Now, what, what's required of the king in these kinds of situations? What is Adam supposed to do with the serpent? Cut his head off. That's what he's supposed to do. And Saul does this in chapter 11. This is why it's a hopeful beginning. He, in verse 5 and 6, he hears the report back from Jabesh. He, the Spirit of God comes on him. He gets rightfully angry. He gets an army together and he cuts them down. It's a good beginning for Saul. It doesn't end well for Saul, as we'll see, unfortunately. But here, the Spirit comes on him. He has the courage to take a stand, which might look like a 20-year-old female just saying something clearly, compassionately, in front of their friends. And if you're here this morning and you're a visitor... You might be like, oh my gosh, I just walked into a bus hall this morning. I thought it was just Jesus loves me, this I know. Well, yes, it is. But it's so much more than that. Your soul is on the line. And I don't want you to be pulling out your eye, thinking that's what's going to bring you life. And then you end up like Ben in some retirement home saying, I've ruined my own life. So you're here by divine providence. You haven't just wandered in this morning to hear this message. God wanted you to hear it. If you're a member here at Christ Community Church, if you're a Christian, you say you're a follower of Christ, you don't have to wait for the Spirit to come upon you like Saul because the Spirit actually lives in you now. And what God wants is not awesome people. He wants obedient people. 
So whether you have to step in at a dinnertime conversation on Thursday at Thanksgiving, whether you have to say something in your workplace or your community or your church, I don't know where God may be calling you to do, but it's not just up to Paul Phillips to do it. I'm not the only one, thankfully, who has the Spirit. It's up to all of us. And the weapon that we say or choose to use is the grace and mercy and truth of the Bible. We're not trying to shout somebody down. But we're trying to tell the truth in a graceful way about who Jesus is. That's our responsibility. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we covered a lot of territory here. And uh, it's territory that has stepped on every soul at some point. And so I pray that by your divine providence, the words that get stuck in our mind are the words that you wanted every individual in this room to hear this morning. That they would think about these things, they would process them, they, they wouldn't allow the Spirit to jump on them in here and then they just get home and forget about it. But they would... They would be changed. They would be transformed by your word. And you would give people courage to follow after you, whatever that cost may be. And to not sacrifice their soul for the voices of the culture. But to trust in you. Even if you're choosing to, to use a dark thread to weave through a life today, you would give courage to your people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing song.